You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Monday. Here's what's ahead. Investing without direction. States are rolling back part of their reopenings. COVID cases are rising and companies aren't giving guidance. How to invest in a world of such uncertainty. And Facebook is facing major backlash. More and more companies, big and small, are pulling advertising. Will this have a lasting impact on its reputation and bottom line? The stock is actually trading higher this afternoon. We'll debate that. And just three days, the story of one small business who opened its doors and then closed them right back up again. What happened? We'll speak with the owners about that ahead. But we do begin with today's rally, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. I mean, it really is a situation where all of these COVID headlines, the economy is front and center. The big drop on Friday, the big kind of gains today you're seeing, Kelly. We are right near session highs, 434 points currently in the Dow right now, 458, just about thereabouts was the high for the Dow so far. So we are just near those highs of the day. The S&P 500 still decently above that 3,000 mark, as you can see there, 3,043 in the NASDAQ composite. A market performer today up about 1%. Better than expected economic data, specifically on pending home sales. These are for houses that have had contracts signed but have not yet closed. It could be a leading indicator for future existing home sales. Pulte Group and the Home Builders up 4.5%. That's just one of them. But you can see there the general trend on some of the optimism off the COVID lows for some of those home builders coming again today. And if you're looking for some of the optimism coming back about perhaps the virus trajectory getting contained a little bit more, look at the travel and leisure stocks. American Airlines up 7% today, $13.25 there. Royal Caribbean on the cruise side up 6%, and even Marriott, 5% gains there. So travel and leisure, certainly very green today. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thanks very much. The coronavirus case count continues to see record spikes in several states, leading more of them to roll back reopenings. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo now says he's considering slowing down phase three reopenings. For all the latest, let's bring in Meg Terrell. Meg, what do we know at this hour? Hey, Kelly. Well, a milestone we're approaching tomorrow. The WHO pointing out that tomorrow marks six months since it was first notified of that mysterious cluster of pneumonia in China. And now, of course, we've surpassed 10 million cases worldwide and more than 500,000 deaths. Director General Dr. Tedros saying in that briefing today that... Uh, We are seeing these concerning spikes even after places have taken these unprecedented efforts to try to contain the virus. Here's what he said. Some countries are now experiencing a resurgence of cases as they start to reopen their economies and societies. Most people remain susceptible. The virus still has a lot of room to move. We all want this to be over. We all want to get on with our lives. But the hard reality is this is not even close to being over. So emphasizing that we need to be doing the testing, isolating, contact tracing. Uh, And here you can see, Kelly, that various states have paused their reopenings or even reversed some of the reopenings. California over the weekend joining Texas and Florida and closing down bars in some counties. And as you mentioned, New York considering slowing uh, the reopening of indoor dining and malls in New York City as Governor Cuomo uh, talking about what he was saying was a lack of compliance with social distancing being observed in the city, Kelly. So even in the areas that have seen the most progress, like New York, still 
being very cautious. What, you. Real quickly on this, Meg, what would pausing phase three uh, mean? It would be pausing the moving toward the reopening of indoor dining hmm. and malls specifically is what he was talking about. Got it. Which in here in New Jersey, we just uh, started reopening those malls today. And I can tell you the traffic, the, the parking lots were packed. The traffic getting into them uh, was much heavier than I expected. Uh, but in other news, Meg, very important news today, Gilead came out with pricing for remdesivir. Um, a lot of people focusing on the disparity between the U.S. and international pricing. But bottom line, how much is this going to cost? So if you are a U.S. patient covered by commercial insurance, it's going to cost you 30% more than if you're covered by government insurance here in the United States or around the world. So this is per vial, $520 for U.S. commercial insurance versus $390 for the government price. Uh, the average course is about six vials over five days. So that's about $3,000 for commercially insured patients. So a 30% price difference in those. And we talked with Gilead's CEO and he said, that's just the way U.S. pricing works. There's a two-track pricing for commercially insured versus government insurers. Gilead had been up as much as 3% on this news today, although it is flattening out here. Uh, analysts, Kelly, are generally projecting this to mean that Gilead will make about $2 billion in revenue off of this drug this year. Uh, and given that they're spending a billion dollars on it, that's a billion dollars in profit. Interesting. All right, Meg, thanks very much. Meg Terrell with all the latest headlines for us. And it doesn't help investors that, meanwhile, 40 percent of S&P 500 companies have now pulled their guidance this quarter. Joining me for more on how to invest in this environment, Kim Forrest is chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners and Bryce Doty is senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates. Good to have you both here. Kim, your thoughts overall on this market? Um, pretty nice rebound today. Last week was a little messier. Well, I think everything is all about COVID-19, and that is what the market has its eye on. And if the news is good, we go up. And if the news is not that good, we go down. And I think we're really, really keying on um, the things that can save people, which are um, things like uh, Gilead's drug and then uh, vaccines. So got a little good news on that today, and the market goes up. So what would you do? I mean, do you stick with technology? Do you stick with, you know, a lot of the frankly high price stuff that has been working and kind of points towards a, a kind of technologically transform, transformed future? Um, I would. And um, although, you know, I'm kind of a thrifty gal and I like to buy things on sale. So I'm looking for um, companies that are not necessarily in the spotlight of Wall Street but I am looking for companies that can add productivity. And I think that's key because that will never go out of style regardless of how else our world is changing. Yeah. And some of those names are, is that when you look at a Micron and NetApp, Xilinx, that sort of thing? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And those are all in the guts of, uh, of technology. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate that description. Uh, but, you know, that, that stuff is important. Uh, Bryce, let me turn to you, bring you in and ask you about this issue with guidance, um, which we basically don't really have any. I mean, you, it's true that makes it difficult to get that clarity on the next quarter. But I don't know. Is it just we know from Nike earnings from so many other results that earnings are going to be all over the map. So does that make it more difficult for you or does this just par for the course? Well, I think it creates opportunity because when there's the most amount of uncertainty is when there's the most potential growth in uh, in a stock price or in a, or in a corporate bond. So um, on one hand, you know, it makes it very, very difficult. It adds a lot of volatility to uh, your, your investing experience and maybe overall in your portfolio, you want to dial back the risk. But when there's maximum uncertainty, 
total lack of visibility, that's when you probably should be buying. So we, we're firmly in the camp of buying on dips. Uh, we like we like the airline trade. We also like a basket of REITs, diversified amount of REITs, because you know whether it's rental property or, or warehouse property or what, it seems like uh, people are assuming the worst when there's no clarity at all. And so that's that's the time to kind of try and uh, be an opportunistic investor. We think. No, I take your point that you know when you when you have that confusion, it does create opportunities. But how do you know you're not going to get burned? I mean, by of course this could turn out much better than people are expecting. But I go back to Buffett and selling out of the airlines, and you know, knowing with some of those balance sheets, it's going to be a really tough slog. Well, we think there's a huge amount of pent up demand. You saw the housing data this morning look good. Uh, we we think consumers are. are chomping at the bit to spend. I think, you know, your observation about what's going on at the malls is there. So all of that uh, does lend us a little bit of uh, comfort that we won't get burned. Uh, You could, and there will be areas where you do. Uh, You have to, you know, have a little bit of the law of large numbers on your side, knowing that you're going to have a lot more winners than losers. But but we still are thinking that, you know, there's just a huge amount of savings that is been uh, retained by consumers and they're itching to spend it. So I don't know if there's going to be a big surge in economic activity in the fourth quarter of this year or the first quarter of next year, but it's it's coming. So you, you're going to take some hits along the way. I, I always think of it as hitting some air pockets and on the stock market. But uh, when you look out six, nine months, yeah. I think I think it's going to be pretty positive. Let me finish uh, with you, Kim, going back to this whole idea, which we know is true, of course, with the market, the good news, you know, helps equities, bad news, we see sell-offs. You know, we could be in this environment for a long time. I mean, I guess until there's some breakthrough on the vaccine full stop, uh, we're going to be in these cycles. So are you opportunistic about that? I am, but I'm also playing longer term themes. I agree with the other guests that not everything is going to collapse. That's for sure. But I do think that there will be um, losers here, and I want to stay as far away from those as I can. So what I'm doing is trying to imagine how the world is going to change. And I, I do believe that even when we get back to whatever a new normal is, it is going to be a new normal. And an easy place is work from home. I think a lot of people really like the flexibility of it. And I think a lot of companies are looking into this. So commercial real estate might be one of the biggest losers of COVID. And I think that you have to think like that. Really think long and deeply about what areas are going to um, decline and what are going to persist. And that's where you have to put your money is the places where you have a pretty good idea yeah. that people are always going to want that good or service. All right. Fair enough. It's again, good to have you both here today. Kim Forrest and Bryce Doty. Thank you. Thank you. And we heard uh, briefly about the housing numbers. They were strong this morning. Home buyers rushed back into the market in May and that resulted in record home sales. Diana Olick is here and she's got more on these stunning numbers for us. Diana. Yeah, Kelly, we expected a jump, but nothing like this. Talk about your V-shaped recovery. Pending home sales, which are measured by signed contracts on existing homes, 
jumped 44% in May compared with April, still down 5% from a year ago. But that's the biggest jump in the Realtors survey history going back about 20 years. Now, sales were up across the nation, but the strongest monthly jumps were in the Northeast and West. The Northeast, however, still much weaker than a year ago, while the West is nearly flat. Buyers were helped by falling mortgage rates, which are now hovering around record lows, but there are some red flags. Some say this may just be pent-up demand from March and April when sales plummeted. And if the recent spike in COVID cases causes shutdowns again, well, that could hurt the housing market as well. Kelly? Yeah, it's a 44% increase. Not a number you wake up to every day. Diana, thanks very much. Diana Olick with the latest. Coming up, iconic brands continue pulling ad dollars from Facebook. Some are boycotting social media altogether. In fact, just now, Clorox announced it will stop ads through December. Facebook stock actually higher today, at least this afternoon. It's up just under 2%, but it dropped 12% last week. How much of a lasting impact will all this have? We will debate that. Plus, Boeing shares are jumping after its 737 MAX is cleared for test flights. In fact, one just took off moments ago. So what happens now? How long until passengers get back on board? We've got the details coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Shares of Facebook are reversing higher today. They're up about one and a half percent despite the growing ad boycott of the platform. Just moments ago, Clorox announced it'll pull its ads through December. Julia Borson is here with all the latest. Julia? Well, Kelly, the amount of Facebook's ad revenue that is at risk is certainly growing. Among the brands that are boycotting Facebook are Starbucks, which was Facebook's sixth biggest advertiser in the U.S. last year, spending an estimated $95 million, according to Pathmatics. It joins Honda, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Verizon. Just today, Denny's and Clorox just joined in this boycott. Now, some are pausing spending for a month in the U.S. Others are pausing spending indefinitely and globally. Now, all of this was sparked by the Stop Hate for Profit campaign organized by the NAACP and Anti-Defamation League, among others. Now, the growing boycott indicates dissatisfaction with Mark Zuckerberg's move Friday to announce he was cracking down on hate speech in ads and that he would be labeling incendiary posts by politicians. Digital marketing company Social Code tells me that their clients will see a decline in online sales if they pull ads from Facebook in July, because they say Facebook has the highest return on investment of the digital platforms. Now they're working to move their clients' ad dollars over to Snap and Pinterest, as well as to digital video platforms like Hulu, Peacock, and YouTube. Now, with 82% of analysts having a buyer overweight rating on the stock, the majority are saying now that the boycott's impact will be relatively limited, and they believe Facebook will make more policy changes. Kelly? All right, Julia, thank you. Let's discuss if this will have a lasting impact on Facebook. For more on where the company goes from here, I'm joined by Brad Gasworth. He's the chief technology strategist at Wedbush Securities. Also, Casey Newton is Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. So much happening today. Brad, let's start with you. And, I mean, your note made tons of headlines all weekend because you are one of the people who do think this will have a big impact on Facebook's business. How big and what options do they have to address it? Yeah, it's a, I mean, they really do need to address this in a way that advertisers and companies really see fit. And uh, I mean, clearly a majority, you know, the lion's share of revenue at the company comes from advertising. That's no surprise. 
Um, you know, the, the one thing, if you look at the Facebook platform, it's really, it's still considered a must-have. And uh, as uh, I pointed out earlier, it, you really get a really good return on investment at, um, you know, with those ad dollars. Now, the thing that we have to watch is currently a lot of these advertising companies or ad dollars that are being moved away are either for the month of July or domestically. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at the NAACP and the ADL, they really are pulling for this global pull. If you do get a global pullback, this will have a longer term impact. Um, you know, wait to be seen. Like all of a sudden, if you get good return on investment from Pinterest, uh, Snap or some of these other platforms, maybe these advertisers really start to really spend at these other platforms as well. Interesting. So a company like Clorox, it just announced its boycott through year end. If they put those marketing dollars to work on other social media platforms and like what they get, they might not put as many back with Facebook. Because you're, you're saying that Facebook needs to address this issue quickly and effectively in order to stop advertising exits from potentially spiraling out of control. What does addressing this issue effectively look like? I mean, that, that's the that's the trillion dollar question, right? I, I think uh, Zuckerberg needs to come out and and have a plan to really stop some of this these these the hate speech and really have a good and a real detailed policy, not just a, a near term band aid, but need to have a policy at the company that these other um, you know customers of theirs feel comfortable advertising on their platform. Right now, there's a lot of things that that go under um, sort of under the hood, and you know, I think these companies are just fed up with it. So. Um, now, will they do it? Again, Facebook is one of the best platforms overall to use advertising to get the broadest reach for the for the customer. But I, I, I do expect uh, Zuckerberg and company to do something to address this. What exactly? That's the, that's the great question. I think they have to really beef up and look into their plan, but they can't let it slide. I, I think there's too much at stake. You still have a $250 price target on the stock, about, I think, about $40, $30, $40 from where we are today. So it's not as if uh, for you this is a selling opportunity of Facebook per se. Um, but I am curious if the company just waits this out for a few months when the world turns its attention elsewhere. You know, look what happened after Cambridge Analytica. The stock was in the 100s back then. Everybody left. Everybody, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, came back. Is the same thing going to happen this time? Yeah, and, and Kelly, it's such a good question. I, I think, I mean, you're addressing some of the most important points here. Right? So first of all, I, I mean, this is this is the best platform with the broadest reach on the planet. So, you know, will it go away? Very unlikely. I, I think the, the real thing to watch here is, you know, how quickly do they address and are they able to address these concerns in a manner that really appeased to their customer base? And I think given how bad things have gotten, they're going to, they're going to need to. So um, the overall net is, I mean, even to your point, Clorox just a, a few moments ago announced they're pulling Unilever, which they're pulling a significant portion, but they were only pulling, pulling domestic, not global spend. I think you're going to see more and more join, the, join this. I think it's going to have a near-term impact for sure. It's almost impossible for them not to see and get a hit to near-term financials. That being said, on the medium to long term, I, I think this company is still a must-have in terms of advertising spend and broad reach. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do expect the company to come with a policy that does make sense. What exactly does that entail is the greatest question, but yeah. I do expect them to do something that addresses it. All right, Brad, again, it's good to have you today. Thank you. Brad Gasworth is chief technology strategist with Wedbush. Let's turn to Casey Newton now, the Virgil Silicon Valley editor. And Casey, I'm actually going to start with a different news piece that just came in, maybe illustrates uh, kind of what Brad was just talking about. Reddit said it's going to, let me make sure I get the language right, ban hundreds of subreddits uh, where they say there's been a problem with hate speech, and that includes uh, the Trump, the sort of pro-Trump Reddit. What does this announcement say to you, and, and does it have any bearing on the discussion we were just having about how Facebook moderates its platform? 
Well, clearly there is a lot of discussion right now about what platforms should do about the hate speech that gets put onto their platforms. And for years now, Reddit has staked out a position of being an extremely pro-speech, pro-expression environment. Uh, But they've also been under increasing pressure, especially this month with all the Black Lives Matter protests, to do something about some of the explicit hate speech and incitements to violence that they've been seeing on their platform. And so today they rewrote their content policy basically, and their new new first rule uh, explicitly bans hate speech. And so as a result, as you mentioned, uh, the Donald is going away along with a number of other uh, subreddits who have violated their rules. So for Reddit, this really is a, a major announcement. But does Reddit have a lot of advertising? I mean, this is not something driven by the advertising community, is it? It's, is it more a regulatory move? I think it's more in response to their own user base. Something like 800 subreddits signed a petition earlier this month asking for the company to do more about hate speech. Some of those uh, forums went dark for a day, prevented users from posting. So there's been a lot of internal activism within the Reddit community arguing for policies like this that would drive out some of this explicit hate speech and incitements to violence. All right. So let's turn back to Facebook now and and what you think they might be likely to do here, to Brad's point, to address this issue effectively before it spirals out of control? Well, I, look, I, I think that the, the, the hype around this boycott is getting a little bit out of control. At the end of the day, these brand advertisers on Facebook make up less than 10% of Facebook's overall advertising. Uh, the bulk of Facebook advertising is direct response advertising, and those advertisers aren't going anywhere. So you're living in a time where ad budgets are shrinking anyway because of the pandemic. And I think you've got some companies that, yeah, sure, they don't like their content being next to hate speech, but they're also just looking for a good way to get some retweets uh, by announcing that Facebook is bad on Twitter. So I really am pretty cynical about this whole thing, and I don't think it's going to have much of a long-term effect on Facebook at all. And the number one reason why is look at what they're actually asking for. Facebook already has policies banning hate speech. Until they can get more specific about what actually they want, uh, I'm going to continue to be cynical. Well, and and of course, if these advertisers come back, then you'll know it was a tempest in a teapot. What happens if they feel like longer-term Facebook is now a toxic platform, and if it loses that 10% of ad spend? Well, I think as long as a direct response advertising on Facebook continues to work as well as it does, it's just not going to have that big of a long-term effect. Uh, maybe some of those brand dollars will go to TV, other digital properties. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who can still spend a dollar on Facebook to make $2 worth of revenue. And, and as long as that's the case, I think that this uh, sort of, you know, ginned up controversy uh, over hate speech policies, it just feels a little bit ridiculous to me. Again, hate speech is banned on Facebook. So if your problem is just that Facebook isn't doing a good enough job enforcing uh, its hate speech policies, then maybe the conversation you actually want to have is why is Facebook as big as it is? And maybe should we put some regulations around that? Interesting. In the last minute that I have with you, Casey, I actually want to introduce a third topic today, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you saw this news that India will now be banning TikTok and WeChat. These are Chinese apps. They're not the only ones. They banned a bunch more as their skirmish, which originated over the border, continues. But listen, I mean, speaking of Facebook, this would be a huge boon for WhatsApp, wouldn't it? I mean, those messaging apps are super popular. I don't know about the popularity of TikTok, but I was surprised. To me, it seems like a pretty big move. What are your thoughts? 
Uh, I absolutely agree. It is a big move. Um, uh, TikTok has been temporarily been banned in India before. The Indian regulators do tend to take a stronger hand on this sort of thing than we're used to seeing in America. Um, my expectation is that this will get resolved. But I think what you're seeing is that India in particular is paying a lot of attention to TikTok's data retention policies. And it's realizing that it's just a, a kind of diplomatic tool as they are attempting to navigate this conflict with China one of the, the levers they have to pull is the economic relationship uh, mm -hmm. that they have and the fact that hundreds of millions of Indians love using TikTok and now they can't anymore. You think we'd ever do the same thing? Oh, man, I would never bet too heavily on the U.S. government uh, regulating big tech. <laughs> <laughs> so cynical in so many ways. Casey, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, sir. We do appreciate Sorry. it. Casey Newton Sorry. of The Verge joining us today. Coming up, spending and swiping new data from J.P. Morgan suggests people are buying more. Even as COVID spreads, the firm will join us with those details and what it tells us about the recovery. Plus, one small business in Arizona reopened its doors this month and closed them three days later. We'll hear their story. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets right now are at session highs. The Dow's up just under 500 points, up 493. That's a 2% gain. And as you can see, it's by far the outperformer today. The S&P is up 1.2% or 36 points. It is about 30.45 is your level for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq up a little less than 1% or 90 points. Check in on the sectors. And as you can imagine, it's not technology leading the way today. It's industrials, materials, and energy. So definitely a rotation there in terms of leadership. Uh, the industrials are up nearly 3% today. And on some individual movers, how about shares of Under Armour today? What a story this is. The company says it's ending its 15-year, $280 million apparel relationship uh, with UCLA only four years into the contract. Now, Under Armour says this is because of a lack of marketing benefits it expected from UCLA. The university says it'll fight to end this partnership. Of course, a huge revenue stream for them. And look at Under Armour shares. They're up nearly 8% on this move today. Meanwhile, shares of Cody are higher after announcing they'll pay $200 million for a 20% stake in Kim Kardashian West's makeup brand. It's the second deal Cody has struck with the Kardashian-Jenner family. It has a 51% stake in Kylie Jenner's brands, and Cody is up nearly 13% today. Finally, it doesn't come as a surprise, but Chesapeake Energy has officially filed for bankruptcy. We've been reporting on this time and again, whether they were going to or not. It follows a financial mess at the company with sources telling our David Faber there were no budgets, a massive wine collection, a nine-figure bill for parking garages. So the drop in oil and gas prices amid the pandemic, adding to that pain immensely. The company says $7 billion in debt will be wiped out through this restructuring. Chesapeake Energy shares are I, I suppose just halted entirely that they're just not trading right now. Um, but this had been one of the biggest stock movers of the year as investors tried to figure out uh, whether that official filing was coming. Now, here's a surprising twist on consumer spending. Credit card usage is rising, even in places where COVID is spreading rapidly. J.P. Morgan tracks spending habits of its 30 million credit and debit card holders. And it says spending overall is still rebounding. It's now down less than 10 percent from this time last year. Joining me with more is Jesse Edgerton. He's senior economist at J.P. Morgan. Jesse, it's good to have you back. And so are you seeing overall spending rise even in places like Texas, Florida and Arizona? Uh, yes, we still are at this point. Uh, spending has slowed a little bit in those places where it's not rising as fast in Texas and Florida as it is in places like New York and New Jersey. They're still bouncing back from the lockdowns. Uh, but on net, 
spending is still going up a little bit, even in those places like Texas and Florida. Are you surprised by that overall, the resilience? Uh, so far, I think. I mean, well, we're, we'll see how it plays out here. Um, you know, certainly we did have a big hole to dig out of with a lot of room to bounce back. So we've always been expecting a, a partial V-shape where we get a, a fairly rapid bounce off the bottom. But I would also say that those virus case numbers are starting to look pretty scary in places like Texas and Florida. So I would not be surprised if we see more of a pullback here. Sure. And overall, what do you think is going on with the recovery based on this consumer spending data? Because you could argue credit card usage is up because it's out of desperation that people have to rely on that in order to keep spending. Is there any way to figure out if it's uh, kind of a bad news or, or good news phenomenon? Well, I mean, certainly at the beginning of the virus episode, we saw these big jumps up in essential spending at things like uh, supermarkets and um, uh, hardware stores, discount stores, things like that. Uh, But over the last month or two, we have been seeing these more gradual rebounds and more discretionary spending like uh, restaurants, uh, lodging, you know, slowly in in airlines, things like that. So, no, I think we are seeing uh, some slower bounce in that discretionary spending, too. And you say it's largely the younger generations, which, again, will bear watching in the kind of weeks ahead. But how are they faring spending-wise relative to the older generations? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Um, So younger generations like millennials and and Generation Z, uh, especially in some of these southern states like Texas and Florida, they had kind of led the bounce back. As of a month or two, they were clearly ahead of both New York millennials and uh, baby boomers in the south. Uh, but more recently, the New Yorkers have been catching up. Uh, so New York millennials have had a strong couple of weeks of spending here. They're nearly caught up to the, the Texas millennials in our data. Uh, also starting to see some rise in the New York and, and northern state baby boomer spending. Interesting. Last question. Uh, it is very encouraging to think that spending overall is down less than 10 percent now from last year. But it's also pretty terrifying if we were to stay at this level. So does it look like that is plateauing off or do you think it is possible that we're still going to rise ultimately, maybe even meet uh, last year's spending levels? Uh, well, it's a good question here with the virus spreading. Um, we also did point out that these places like Texas, Florida and Arizona, where the virus is spreading most rapidly, you know, those are the same places where spending and activity had risen the most as of a couple of, as of a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, there definitely does seem to be this link between the economy's reopening and people going back out to uh, restaurants and other activities and the virus spreading. So, you know, I think we'll have to watch carefully to see how people's behavior changes and, you know, whether we get more policy restrictions like we did in, in Florida and Texas over the weekend. So I would have to think we'll see at least some, some partial pullbacks in some of these categories and some of these places where the virus is spreading rapidly. Yeah, we will look forward to the next update. Uh, Jesse, thanks for the granularity. It's fascinating. Appreciate it. Sure. You're welcome. Jesse Edgerton is senior economist at J.P. Morgan. Coming up, reopening and then reclosing. We're going to talk to one business owner who opened his doors in Arizona and had to shut right back down three days later. We'll tell you why. Plus, 25% capacity just won't do with limitations like those. Stiefel's CEO says an economic recovery will be very hard to achieve, and there will be more bankruptcies ahead. He'll join us to explain on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check in with Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Welcome back, Sue. Thank you so much, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The city of Jacksonville, Florida, will require people to wear masks in public indoor settings beginning today at 5 p.m. 
Florida has seen a huge spike in coronavirus cases over the past week, with more than 46,000 cases confirmed in that time. Meanwhile, Australia reporting its biggest daily rise in coronavirus cases in two months. Australia's second most populous state says it is now considering reimposing social distancing restrictions. The NFL fining the New England Patriots $1.1 million for filming the field and the sidelines during a game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns. The NFL also taking away the Patriots' third-round draft pick in next year's draft. And the Rolling Stones threatening legal action against President Trump for using their songs at his rallies. The Rolling Stones' 1969 song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, has been a popular song at President Trump's events. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. All right, Sue. Thank you very much. Now, as we continue to track the rise of COVID cases across the country, Arizona just reported its highest daily virus case count, nearly 4,000 on Sunday. It's now seen cases surge more than ninefold since reopening on May 1st. My next guests own a massage spa in Arizona and decided to close their doors due to safety concerns only three days after reopening at the start of the month. For more on the path forward for their small business, I'm joined by Seth and J.C. Boyack. They own Citrus Massage in Chandler, Arizona. Uh, welcome, guys. Great to have you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and we're, we are so interested to hear about this story. So, uh, Seth, I'll start with you. Uh, you reopened. You actually had full appointments booked for the first two, three days. Is that right? But it was your workers who revolted. What happened? Yeah. And so um, we, we took a lot of precautions to actually like reopen our doors. Uh, it took us we, we, we waited about two weeks until we were actually able to reopen. So we, we even delayed that. We were fully booked. We had uh, we were booked for about three weeks out, actually. And after about day three, uh, JC called me and she just said, you know, this feels very uncomfortable. Um, tensions were on edge. Uh, our, uh, I wouldn't say tensions were on edge, but, I, you know, our, our therapist just felt scared. I mm-hmm. guess that's the best way to say it. They just felt scared because... We, we're in an environment where they might live with their uh, a grandparent. They might live. They might have some autoimmune or uh, auto like compromised position, and so they felt nervous just being in close proximity with uh, with clients. Yeah, and JC, this goes back to the mask issue, right? So it was partly that you guys didn't require masks for people, and they were, you know face up on the massage table. I mean, I know we're getting into some of the details here, but I am, I am yeah. curious how much that played into the anxiety that, that your therapist had. You know, yeah. So we came back to work. When you're face down on the massage table, you didn't have to wear a mask. When you flipped over, we made it optional. If people wanted to wear a mask, they could. If they didn't feel comfortable or couldn't wear a mask, they didn't have to. Um, and by day three, you know, it, we just, with we knew cases were rising in Arizona and, it just being in such close proximity to other people. I'm not a massage therapist. I work the front desk. And even that, you know, I was scared. And I thought, if I'm nervous to be at work, uh, how can I expect my employees to go into a 10 by 10 room and really be in such a high touch yeah. industry? It, it was just a scary, it was a scary, unnerving time. And, and it wasn't very comfortable. JC, did you guys think about requiring masks? Do you think that would have helped the anxiety that you as employees felt, but would your clients still have shown up under those conditions? You know, I think so. We did require masks in every area of the spa 
had we required them face up, I still think with the Arizona cases rising, uh, you know, you're not socially distanced. You're within just a few inches of somebody. And so uh, would our clients have come? I, I think they would, but um, we do have the best clients in the world. But I, I do know that it, it's it's scary for the clients as well. Sure. Seth, let's talk about the financials now and, and what happens next. So are you aiming to reopen? What happens for the kind of rent payments, the other bills that you guys have to make? Did you apply for help from the PPP program? Yeah, good questions. Um, we did apply for PPP. Um, we waited for the second round because we knew we were going to close down. So we didn't want to, you know, kind of clog up the system for the businesses that were going to stay open. Uh, we got approved. And um, as I started asking questions about, okay, what does this look like as far as a forgivable loan versus an actual loan? Uh, that wasn't as clear. And so I opted to not take the PPP because as a small business only being open for the last year, um, I just couldn't have that, that debt on our balance sheet. Um, and mm -hmm. if, it, if it became a loan. And so, yes, we still have, we still have bills to pay. We, uh, are, we we're working with our landlord and he's, he's agreed to defer our payments, um, until we actually get, get open back up, but there's still a bunch of other bills just to keep the, keep the lights on. Um, so yeah, yeah. So, so, so when, bills keep mounting up. When do you now think you'll be able to reopen and will you have enough, uh, therapists? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, ask me tomorrow and I might know, I might know more. No, um, we, you know, it's a day by day thing. JC and I talk about it on the daily for hours as far as what the future looks like. Um, we feel like w we would be irresponsible to open up as cases continue to rise. You know, the CDC said, Hey, let's, let's see a, a, a two week decline in cases before we start looking at, you know, opening the economy back up. We really never saw that here. Um, so I would be looking for something like that where we're seeing cases slow down dramatically um, and then just implementing kind of to your point, yeah. the masks on the on the um, when you're face up on the table. Um, but I still think it's it's a really scary, nerve wracking time for, for our therapists and for clients. And so um, what that looks like going forward, it's tough to say. So, yeah. Um, that, that, that's that's kind of how we're approaching it and looking at it basically day by day, week by week. Well, best of luck to both of you. You know, it's just such a, a difficult place to be. And we appreciate you coming on to tell us your story. Hey, thanks for having thanks, us. Kelly. Absolutely. We'll <laughs> Seth and JC Boyack. I'll be there in the winter, uh, maybe in a few years. We really appreciate it. Owners of Citrus Massage. Coming up, Boeing 7, 737 MAX uh, has now been grounded for 473 days. But today, some of the planes will be back in the air as recertification flights begin. We'll have a closer look at that process and what has to happen for the MAX to start flying passengers again. Boeing shares up more than 10% today, and that rise giving a boost to the Dow and the overall markets. We're now up more than 500 points on the Dow at 509 at session highs. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Boeing are at session highs, up more than 10% right now, just off that level. As recertification test flights of the 737 MAX began just at the top of the hour, since the plane was grounded in March of 2019, the stock is still down about 50%. Philip Bo is here with a closer look at what we can expect. Phil? 
Kelly, we will likely not hear any kind of an update in terms of how this first recertification flight went. By the way, they're expected to land probably within the next 10 minutes, and then there is a return flight uh, back to Seattle. That'll happen a little later on this afternoon. So what exactly happens on a recertification flight, and what are they looking at? Here's one example of what people will be looking for with the MAX. In the cockpit, an FAA test pilot will take the lead. Sitting to their right, a co-pilot from Boeing with another flight engineer in the jump seat. They'll fly a specific route that's detailed on a flight test card, including exact parameters like altitude, airspeed, and center of gravity for the plane. It is the script of specific scenarios the pilot will follow in the air with data constantly being sent to computers and engineers in the back of the plane and on the ground. It's all recorded with multiple cameras. But the real focus of the MAX certification flight will be the reworked MCAS flight control software. MCAS was designed to trigger in certain situations, like takeoffs, when the nose of a MAX could rise too much, leading to a possible stall. To keep that from happening, MCAS automatically lowers the nose while the plane accelerates. The software has been redesigned, so MCAS can only be triggered once, not repeatedly, which was a primary factor leading to the MAX crashes. The FAA pilot will not deviate from the flight test card, so there are no mid-flight changes. Nothing's done on the fly. And when they land, the test flight may be over, but analyzing the data collected in-flight will just be starting. And as you take a look at shares of Boeing, keep in mind that Boeing has done dozens of its own test flights. Basically, they know what this plane will be asked to do during a recertification flight. So there should be no surprises if all goes as planned. This is a crucial hurdle, Kelly, towards possible possible ungrounding of this plane by the end of the summer and then a return to service later this year. But they still have a number of hurdles to clear. It's fascinating watching that animation, Phil. That was great. I mean, not only do I get nervous every time because you realize, you know, how, how delicate uh, all of this is, but uh, to understand what, what they're changing with the MCAS. So basically you're saying if all goes as planned, passengers could be on this plane before the end of the year? Yes, yes. Now keep in mind, once it is ungrounded, let's say it gets ungrounded by the end of the summer. Maybe it's in early September that they ungrounded. Southwest has already said, look, it's going to take us 45 to 60 days, do pilot training, get the planes ready. So maybe you're looking at November or December. Yeah, and then we'll talk about how the public feels about going back on that plane. They didn't change the name, uh, and we'll see where it goes. Phil, thanks so much. Phil Abo with all the latest for us. Coming up, it's the overlooked threat. Stiefel's CEO says there's one very important industry that's being ignored, and it could see bankruptcies, and the Fed can't save them. He'll tell us what that is next. Take a look at shares of Zoom Info Technologies as well. That's the other other Zoom, recently IPO'd, and the street is initiating on the stock today. It got six buys, eight holds, no sells. Mizuho, the highest, was 63 $50 was the street low. Shares are down 4%, just under 50 bucks today. We're back after this. Welcome back. While most federal stimulus measures have been aimed at small businesses, my next guest says one very important sector is being overlooked. It's our health care system. He recently said a spate of hospital bankruptcies is on the horizon potentially. And not just that, but restaurants are also at risk with capacity limits. It could all lead to a very slow economic recovery. For more, let's welcome in Ron Koshevsky, the chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial. It's good to have you back, Ron. And the hospital bankruptcies, I mean, it's a, it's a real threat. What, what options do they face? 
Well, I think that, first of all, you've got to commend the hospitals for doing all that they did to make sure that there were adequate beds uh, to handle uh, the COVID. And, and what that did was it, it had some side effects, like having people not go to the hospital for anything. And it's, it's difficult today. There's no uh, elective surgeries being done. So the hospitals are losing millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and, and that's a long-term problem, for sure. And so we have the PPP program that can help small businesses. The Fed is just starting to roll out the Main Street lending program that's supposed to be aimed at somewhat larger companies. Would hospitals and be, be eligible for that? I mean, I guess for restaurants, it, it could kind of fall under either one. But again, the Main Street program is just just getting off the ground. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, the Main Street program is loans, and, and loans are always welcome in any business if you can get them. The hospitals, I think, have a unique uh, set of circumstances here, and we it would be almost somewhat ironic if the very policies that we employed to deal with this COVID resulted in our hospitals uh, running out of money. Yeah. Uh, so if, if there's any, I mean, if there's any institutions that uh, uh, have a need and probably should get aid, it's the hospitals. I mean, I, I, mean I, I can't even believe that's a debatable question, to be honest with you. Do you think it is, or is it just a matter of recognition that as soon as Congress is aware of the hole these hospitals are facing, that we're talking about billions of, of basically grants, you know, just direct relief? Well, I would hope so. Again, I, I would, uh, if, if this issue needs to be elevated in the collective conscious of uh, of politics and or business, uh, I'd be surprised. But if it is, and I'm going to say right now, our hospitals are in trouble and we need to deal with that because we need to be able to deal with this if we have a second wave or whatever. Uh, we're need, we need hospital capacity. So let's not, let's not have our hospitals run out of money. Yeah, and it's a problem for those uh, big university <laughs> systems as well. They get a lot of their funding from their hospitals facing that a, a huge hole there. Let me just ask you, as we talk about the state of the economy generally, what are you seeing at Stiefel these days among clients? I mean, are there places that have you more concerned? Because we've been hearing about a general kind of snapback in consumer spending here. But what about some of the harder hit parts of the country? I mean, what can you tell us about what's going on? You know, I think you hit it, Kelly. It's geographic, all right? It absolutely depends on where you are. Here in the Midwest, uh, the, the economy uh, feels like it's coming back faster here. Of course, we haven't had a spike in, uh, in COVID cases, uh, as, as you've seen in the, in the Southeast or in Texas. So it, it is definitely by, by geography. We have offices all over the place. So I can tell you where it feels like uh, things are rebounding and areas where things are going backwards. Uh, of course, the newspapers are telling us that too. Yes. Uh, and, and final question. Are you are you starting to price in? Uh, and I, this got to be real quick. I shouldn't even raise it. But I can't help it since you're here. Are you starting to price right. in a, a Biden victory in the fall? Oh, that's a great question. I think the bigger question is whether or not you would have one uh, one government, meaning the Senate and the president that that the market would not uh, like that, not for politics reasons, but for tax policy reasons. But that would require the administration and yeah. the executive and the Senate change hands. The market has not priced that in. I'll tell you that. All right. Well, we'll talk more about it in the months ahead. That's for sure. All right. See you again soon, uh, Mr. Krzyzewski. And thanks for joining us, Ron Krzyzewski of Stiefel today. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.